Choose life. Choose a job. Choose a career. Choose a family. Choose a fucking big television. Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays, and electrical... Give us your best approximation of a Scottish accent by telling us what you did today. I can't fucking do it. I can't fucking do it. <laughs> fucking do it. They over-enunciate everything. <laughs> <laughs> I want some fucking skag. Do you find this approach normally works? Or oh, let me guess, you've never tried it before. See, it sounds Irish. I can't do Scottish. Yeah, you sound like, um, Titanic. <laughs> the I sound like the Titanic. <laughs> you sound like the, the under the steerage part of Titanic. <laughs> She's got a blow. What is he? I don't even know what they say in them. Iceberg, right ahead. <laughs> Can I read this in, a, in my horrible Scottish accent? <laughs> Please do. Wait, let's let's see how it comes out. Don't la- don't laugh. Hello. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to When We Were Young, a podcast devoted to our favorite pop culture from our formative years. <laughs> and to Lucky Charms. <laughs> the accent will make sense in a little bit. Um, <laughs> this is When We Were Young. Uh, in every episode, we take a look at a piece of pop culture from the past. We discuss what it meant to us then, and then we debate whether or not it still holds up now. We cover movies, music, TV. Cereal. <laughs> Rainbows. Terrible, uh, terrible Puts Scottish accents. Hearts, stars, and horseshoes. <laughs> um, I am Becky, and I am the podcast host most likely to go home with Ewan McGregor after he does a sub-poor job at hitting on me at a club. I'm Seth Pearson, the host most likely to be seriously lacking in moral fiber. And I'm Chris, your podcast host most likely to choose washing machines, cars, compact disc players, and electric tin openers. What will you be doing with those things? Heroin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fucking skag. <laughs> so we we talk a lot on this podcast about childhood movies and music and our childhood idols, um, but we're kind of weird. So a lot of <laughs> a lot of what we loved in childhood just happens to be you know movies about heroin and junkies. Speak for yourself. Yeah, I'm no. perfectly normal. <laughs> I was, uh, so I was, just me. I was still watching Disney movies in 1996. <laughs> um, so. Today we're doing Train Spotting, which came out in 1996. Um, I was 13, and it was then, and it still remains today, one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, so that's why we're covering it on the podcast. It's also its um, 20th anniversary. Uh, it was in t- 2006, and the sequel, T2, Train Spotting 2, is coming <laughs> out uh, just in a few weeks. So we thought it would be a great time to look back at Train Spotting and uh, see if it still holds up today and its influence on uh, 90 cinema. So before we launch into train spotting, I believe we've got a few reviews that we'd like to share with you. Happy New Year, everybody. Yes, we do indeed. Um, yeah, on our last podcast, we promised that we would read some of our uh, listener reviews if indeed we got some, and we did. So our first review that is not mine, because I did leave one before we had any, because <laughs> I was sad that we didn't have any. Before you listened to the show. Yeah, I mean, I was here while we recorded it. I, I knew what we said. I wasn't totally fraudulent. But you weren't wearing your listener hat, Chris. All right, our first review comes from Porgy86. It is called Love, lowercase, Love, Love, uppercase. It's a five-star review. And it says, I can't help but crack up every time I play one of these. Give me more. But- <laughs> a lot of lead up for a very short review. <laughs> yes. But thank you, Porgy. <laughs> Long walk off a short pier. <laughs> well, he wants more. So. Oh, I- great. Here's one more. Yes. 
Also, I think we want more from our reviewers. Uh, you don't need to leave a four-part essay, but if you could give us a paragraph. Seth, you're asking too much. Am I? I appreciate you, Porgy. Yes, I'm fine with the five stars, personally. Oh, I'm fine with the five stars, but, I mean, five sentences? Come on. And we have another review to go into from uh, Jaxi82537. Maybe that's part of their phone number. I don't know. I think... He or she wants us to call them. The title is Witty and Fun, which is, I think, two things that we would describe ourselves as. Oh, all the time. That I actually introduce myself as Witty and Fun Seth. That's going to be on my gravestone. <laughs> I carved it. It's ready for you. <laughs> there goes Seth trying to kill us again. <laughs> Uh, The review says, I love listening to this podcast. It's smart, funny, and interesting, and I love how it delves into details I've long forgotten. Makes me want to re-examine my favorites from childhood. If you're looking for a dose of nostalgia with a side of snark, look no further. I particularly love the games they play. I also love Chris's voice. Come to think of it. Chris, you didn't write this Wait, one. Wait, are you sure this no, isn't this is your not review? mine. Let me finish the review. That's right, you don't like your own voice. Review from Chris's mom. <laughs> I also love Chris's voice. Come to think of it, I have a crush on at least one of the hosts. Okay, fine. All three. <gasps> so you've got a secret admirer. Jaxie82537. Well, Valentine's Day is coming up, so... Jaxie. Send us gifts to the show, care of patreon.com slash when we were young. Getting sexy with Jaxie. Okay. Well, those are our reviews for now. Great. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, continue to leave us reviews if you do not mind. Uh, Five stars is preferred. Uh, Tell everyone why you love us so desperately and want to have all of our babies. But pay entirely for those babies and their upkeep. We know what happens when no one takes care of the babies. Uh, They get to see train spotting when they're 13 years old. (laughs) (laughs) And they crawl on the ceiling and fall into you in bed. Yeah. So, um, Train Spotting. It was a 1996 film directed by Danny Boyle. It was his second movie after the Ewan McGregor starring movie Shallow Grave. It was written by John Hodge, based on the novel by Irvine Welsh. Train Spotting stars Ewan McGregor, Ewan Bremner, Johnny Lee Miller, Kevin McKidd, Robert Carlyle, and Kelly McDonald. So, Train Spotting is about um, a bunch of junkies in Edinburgh, Scotland trying to get off heroin, getting back on heroin, stealing money to continue their heroin habit. Um, it all revolves around a character called Mark Renton, and he is the star of the movie. He's not such a great guy, but we do empathize with him and his struggle to get off heroin once and for all and kind of get away from this uh, group of very flawed people, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, before we really launch into train spotting, though, um, I do want to talk about um, our own past, and I have a question for you guys. I'm kind of wondering, what was your experience or your understanding of drugs when you were around 12 or 13 years old? And when were those preconceived notions of drugs challenged in your life? Like probably all of us, we had like the D.A.R.E. program mm-hmm. uh, to keep kids off drugs. Um, what does it stand for? Drug awareness, something education, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, and grew up with those commercials that were, you know, about the frying eggs and this is your brain on drugs. Um, So that was my early understanding is just like this very blanket statement. Drugs are bad. You know, we grew up in the 80s when there was definitely a very political um, war against drugs. That was a very pronounced um, 
thing in the media, but it was very unspecific. And I remember learning about drugs in elementary school, and they always put so much emphasis on marijuana that Mm -hmm. I was under the impression that marijuana was like the worst drug that you could do because that's the one that everyone was like, don't do marijuana, don't do Mm -hmm. marijuana. Like if someone says, you know, do it, just don't do it. And I was like, oh my God, that must be the worst. So maybe I'll just do heroin and cocaine (laughs) and crack, but no marijuana for me. Um, No, I mean, I I wasn't doing any of those things. The more pure the drugs are. This is just obvious. Yeah, so I mean, I think that they did, did a very bad job of communicating what <laughs> drugs actually are. And as we get into this movie, I think this movie is interesting because it shows you both the highs and the lows, I guess, literally, of drug use. But instead of just a... And even a lot of drug movies, I think, are just kind of like, a drugs are bad. Like, there are reasons that people do them, and they're all very different, and they affect people in different ways. And so I don't think that the education that I got prepared me for that. And it, you know, I, w- I wish, I guess, that I had known. At, at some point, you know, I, I learned that there were people in, like, my junior high doing marijuana. And I was, you know, shocked because I was like, oh, my God, marijuana, that's the worst thing you can do. And it took me a while to kind of... How are they not already dead? Yeah, it took me a while to really realize that that, I mean, now it's legal in many states. And um, I know a lot of people who smoke marijuana and are just fine, so... Um, Do you remember what it was in your life, or maybe it was a process of realizing, actually, this, you know, either A, like, it's not so bad, or B, like, just understanding what drugs really were. They weren't, like, this scary devil thing. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is definitely how I saw them early on, and I don't know that that really changed until um, probably I got to college and just saw people doing more things and just learned more about the world in general and what people had done and were doing and just saw that, you know, I mean, most drugs are destructive in some way, but um, it's not quite the black and white of, like, try a drug and your life is immediately train spotting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think it was just life experience, but I didn't have those experiences really in high school. all my friends were pretty conservative, and if anything, you know, some of them might have smoked pot, but other than that, no one was doing drugs that I was really aware of, other than outside my social circle. Yeah, I mean, I, I was born and raised in New Orleans, and I didn't see any drugs other than alcohol until I went to college. Like, literally never saw weed in any context, any any other drugs like that um, until I went to college. Um, and I didn't have a dare program in any of my schools growing up, but you had those commercials. So like drugs were a thing not to do, even though the, even though they were somehow also brunch foods. Um, (laughs) I'm trying to think of any kind of movie experiences that gave me any insight into drug use or drug culture. And again, like even like Requiem for a Dream or anything like that, I didn't see it all until I went to college. Um, so that was kind of when the door opened as far as even just awareness of what um, drug use was, what it meant to people. I don't think I knew like what was smoked, what was snorted, what was injected. Like none of none of those nuances really sunk into me. They were all kind of like labeled under the same umbrella to me. 
Well, yeah, and of yeah. course, I like inherited the stereotypes that my parents tried to pass along, like of what it meant to use drugs and what kind of a person it made you if you use drugs, you know. Mm-hmm. And, but it was, but even that, of course, fell apart immediately when I was in college and would come home for the winter and would start like asking them more about their experiences with drugs and with people who use them. And even there are stories of like, how weed will make you lazy totally fell apart when they were talking about friends of theirs that you see is in the 70s, you know? I think it's interesting that we all three kind of had similar experiences because I had D.A.R.E. programs. We would have days where I remember this like kite making day in elementary school where we had to put like an anti-smoking or anti-drug statement. Like we made up our own and drew them on kites that we would fly outside. (laughs) Do you remember your statement? I think it was like, (laughs) be smart, don't start. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think I remember that one. The award-winning slogan. (laughs) Kites against meth. (laughs) Um, And we had, like, you know, people come in and do little performances about alcohol and drugs and just say no. And I I was very anti-drug. I, you know, I, like you guys, thought it was this big, scary monster. And, you know, marijuana was mixed in with heroin and crack and, and meth. Um and LSD and acid. Like, I remember we had, like, a little booklet that went through every drug and, like, the effects. Um, And it was all really scary to me. And I didn't go anywhere near it. I wouldn't even have known where to get it when I was, you know, uh, a teenager. Um, I, I actually think that one of the reasons of why I was so attracted that had drug use in them, besides the fact that I think that filmmakers were trying to be very experimental when you're dealing with drugs and like hallucinatory experiences. So they're more, you know, creatively um, experimental in that respect. I think it was just it was something that was not in my life. And movies let me, you know, have a little window into people's lives like Pulp Fiction, Trainspotting, Requiem for a Dream were one of my favorite. The three of them were like my top five favorite movies all through high school because it was something that was so different from where I was in my life. And even though I was very anti-drug up until, again, I went to college and I just saw people experimenting and they weren't evil and they weren't, you know, (laughs) junkies and they weren't... Was it reefer madness? (laughs) (laughs) You just, like, you just are... Your worldview gets bigger and you realize, oh, well, drugs are bad, but that person isn't bad and they're totally fine the next day because they just smoke some pot and you just kind of, like, get it where you're like oh it's not this dangerous monster that I was told every day of my childhood um obviously some drugs are much more terrible than others um and shouldn't you know you probably shouldn't be experimenting with them but that's not every drug and there are some positive aspects well but I'm also I also have to push back on that why because both of you have said in the course of describing this oh drugs are bad like taking that for granted in a sense and that's really not true either, because every single person uses a range of drugs in our daily lives. Um, we use them for a variety of reasons. We use them to a wide variance of degrees. And I mean, literally on the scientific level, most of the drugs that we associate as being the quote unquote bad ones aren't chemically addictive in the ways that we've been taught for our whole lives to believe that they are um, just like on a like neuroscience, like the way that they affect your brain. Um, 
drugs like heroin and cocaine and even meth are not as, I don't know about y'all, but I was trained from birth to believe that like all of those drugs were, if you ever experimented with them, if you did them even once, you would be completely chemically, physically dependent on them forever. And that's just not true. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just saying that there are some that are more dangerous than others. Whereas when I was a child, I was told they're all dangerous. Don't try any of them. Right. No, totally. Which I think is an exaggeration. Um, But I mean, obviously, we also have liberal viewpoints on drug use as (laughs) adults. So let's launch into um, Train Spotting the movie. It was a huge critical darling at the time. It was got 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar. That was the year that I also personally really got into movies. I was 13, and that's when I decided I want movies to be a part of my life. And I think it's because I got to an age where I was interested in just learning more about the world, which brought me to, like, train spotting, brought me to movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and The Exorcist and um, Shine instead of Scream, as we talked about in the Scream podcast. <laughs> um, like, I just started dipping my toe into... Um, films that were had adult content but i just i loved it and that particular year that particular year of the oscars was huge for independent cinema because the movies that were nominated for a best picture were shine secrets and lies fargo and the english patient which were all independent films and then also jerry Maguire, which was the only studio movie wow. um in other categories independent movies that were nominated were train spotting sling blade breaking the waves and lone star it was a huge huge year for independent cinema um, and train spotting was kind of part of that wave of new filmmakers rising up and doing things outside of the studio system and doing things that wouldn't necessarily studios would touch with a 10 foot pole, like this drug movie. So train spotting was like your gateway drug to it independent was. cinema. It really, really was. And, and just, like... <laughs> it just took one dose and then you were hooked forever. Yeah. Well, don't do movies. <laughs> You'll sell <laughs> your movies body. Movies are bad. You're going to sell your body for independent cinema. Right. Well, not to, again, Be like. Be smart. Don't start. <laughs> <laughs> not, I, I mean, not to keep talking about myself, but I remember my mom, um, who's very liberal in the movies that she allowed me to watch. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> as we've discovered, um, I asked her to rent me train spotting. I'd heard things about it. This is really she, a child <laughs> psychology podcast. <laughs> so she rent- she's like, it's a movie about trains. Why not? So she's she, interested. She rented me the VHS of train spotting. That's what was there <laughs> yes. back then. I watched it. I, the movie ended. I was so in awe of it, I didn't even get up, I rewound it, and I watched it again. So in the first sitting, I watched it twice in a row. I've never done that with a movie since. Um, Sounds like it was addictive. <laughs> I, I think that's an appropriate metaphor, and I think it was like a gateway drug to to just different movies with, you know, just more experimental, more interesting stories and uh, characters. So that's me. <laughs> um, I don't know if you guys have your own... Uh, I don't know if train spotting or independent cinema at that time like really meant something to you. If you want to touch on that, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, um, I, in I did, short, no. Yeah, really. I, I definitely got there early. I think more than most people. I was I was the person in my group of friends that was showing people like Requiem for a Dream, <laughs> you know, and when they were like not prepared emotionally to handle it. <laughs> yeah. So in 1996, I was more likely to be watching Independence Day than independent cinema. <laughs> Um, that was the number one movie of 1996, by the way. I was trying okay, to thanks. kind of think about what else was out that year. I was aware of these movies because this was around the time I started like looking at Entertainment Weekly. And I I think I watched the Oscars this year. I watched them 
you know, most years. And I had not heard of a lot of these movies or seen them, but a lot of them did stick around. Like I ended up catching Shine on video and it was available for rent um, with my family. I guess this is kind of around this, the time when I would be watching these movies, but I definitely did not see Train Spotting at this time. It was probably a year or two too early for me to really be watching this kind of movie. So I don't think I saw it until college when a friend of mine probably showed me her. It's probably me. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure I watched it uh, with Becky. Um, probably my freshman year. Probably. She probably showed it to me like, hi, I'm Becky. Watch Train Spotting with me. <laughs> probably. I've got this shit I have to show you. I've got the skag. We got to turn the lights off. I like open off. my trench coat and I've got Requiem for a Dream, Pulp Fiction and Train Spotting like on the inside. Yeah. <laughs> I've got the fucking piano back in my room. <laughs> yeah. Come on with me. I've got to show you the independent cinema. But prior, I definitely to- love the pianos too. <laughs> um, prior to seeing Train Spotting, the Danny Boyle movie I did see what was um, the Beach, which came out in two thousand. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Okay, and that was um, really Leonardo DiCaprio's big follow up to Titanic. Mm-hmm. Even though Titanic was ninety seven, that was um, over two years between those movies. But he really kind of stayed out of the public. I for a little while, while Titanic Mania died down a little bit, although it never really did. <laughs> um, Not for me. And uh, so The Beaches of... I remember it being a very strange movie because you kind of expected it to be this heartthrobby kind of movie. With It was sold as like this beautiful beach and there was like a hot, hot girl and then Leonardo DiCaprio. And the movie itself is actually much weirder and does mm-hmm. have to do with drugs. And um, I don't remember the plot exactly but i know that he's i think on drugs at some point and running around like he's in a video game in that movie um and so it's almost like a slightly tamer version of train spotting and i remember watching that in the theater and being like island spotting yeah (laughs) and being a little even like off put by that and being like what's going on here and now that i've seen train spotting and can put that in context it makes a lot more sense that's interesting. I, I'm trying to think of my first Danny Boyle movie. That probably would have been Train Spotting, but I didn't see it until my freshman year at USC. When you met uh, me, and I was like, hi, I'm Becky. <laughs> you watch Train Spotting. I got me. the good stuff. Yeah, funny. Strangely <laughs> enough, Becky led so many of us down that dark path of There's also a line of like 10 guys outside of this apartment just waiting for <laughs> Becky. Hey. <laughs> I'm married. Because of your movie drugs. Oh, okay. <laughs> we don't talk about our lives outside of this podcast, Chris. So there was a small multiplex right by USC that would hold midnight movie screenings, and they would sometimes do revivals. So one time they R. did a oh, UV. I am positive R. I went to see Trainspotting UV. there. I probably the University was. Village theaters um, have since been demolished um, and replaced with... Hogwarts, basically. And replaced with Hogwarts, yeah, basically. Yeah, there's a, there's a giant fortress now where the um, old strip mall near USC used to be. Um, when you see that drawbridge, just remember, people saw late night movies there once. Um, but I went to a midnight screening of Train Spotting my freshman year um, with a group of friends who lived on the same floor as me in the dorm. I fell asleep as I unanimously do during midnight movies. I, I probably dropped for like 20 minutes, though. I, I didn't fall asleep for too long. I really enjoyed it, but it's just when I see a movie at midnight, I, I'm going to sleep through part of that movie. And then the most exciting part of Train Spotting, the first time I saw it, was after it ended and we were heading to the parking lot, there was a shootout on the other side of the parking oh, lot. No. So really, the key moment of that movie experience was 
uh, riding passenger in a car that was driving 60 miles an hour to get out of the parking lot, uh, which was as much of an adventure as any of the Ewans went through in that film. Wow. Huh. Just hope somebody recorded it and put like Iggy Pop on top of your. Yeah, we all <laughs> sang Less for Life on our way out. <laughs> so, Train Spotting, as I said, was, you know, very well received. Um, Neil Jeffries of Empire said at the time, Train Spotting is something Britain can be proud of and Hollywood must be afraid of. If we Brits can make movies this good about subjects this horrific, what chance does Tinseltown have? Ah, the wee Brits. So many dwarf filmmakers at that time. So that was just one uh, positive review out of, you know, almost all of them were positive. But uh, somebody who was critical of the movie was Bob Dole. Yes, I saw this too. In September 1996, Bob Dole stopped by a Los Angeles high school on his campaign trail. And he uh, criticized the glorification of drug use as seen in Train Spotting and Pulp Fiction. He said it promoted the romance of heroin. He also started a chant of his new anti-drug catchphrase, just don't do it, which is really nothing compared to my uh, be smart, don't start. No, If you yeah. think about it. Honestly, did he not see your kite? He... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, he... which which uh, paper was Bob Dole writing for? <laughs> which What was he a critic for? Um, Gene I would Shallot like to say was that... sick one week and Bob Dole took over. <laughs> I'd like to say that he never saw my kite, but he also never saw the movie. He said he had never he seen had no it. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. Um, Fucking Bob Dole supported Donald Trump, so he can go fuck himself. Well, let's move on. (laughs) Um, The budget of the movie was 1.5 million pounds, which was around 2 million at the time. Wow, Um, that's it. It was released in February 23rd, 1996 in the UK and released July 19th, 1996 in the US. Domestic box office was 16 million. The international was 55, 71 million worldwide. It was the highest grossing British film of 1996. And I believe at the time it was the fourth highest grossing British film of all time. So that's not a ton of money, but it is British cinema, which is, you know, compared to Hollywood. Yeah. uh, Not a lot. This was actually um, Danny Boyle's second big hit because his first movie, which was Shallow Grave, um, was also a pretty big hit for a very small movie. It was also cost about a million dollars. Um, it was released in 95, and it ended up grossing $19 million, and it was the, also the biggest movie in the UK that year. Which is kind of nuts. Yeah. Wow. That this new filmmaker, two years in a row, and also Shallow Grave's not very good. Oh, I watched it. So I watched it last night. I thought it, it's decent as a as a debut film. I mean, it's, it's very well directed. Did you watch the whole movie? Or? I watched like three-fourths of it, and then I had to give up because I was just, everything I hate about 90s independent cinema is that movie and everything i love about 90s independent cinema is train spotting so i just thought was really interesting my visceral disgust with shallow grave and how much i like train spotting yeah i didn't mind shallow grave i mean i definitely think train spotting is a better movie but it also stars ewan mcgregor um so it's kind of interesting uh ewan mcgregor glorious hair yeah he looks so different (laughs) between (laughs) shallow grave and train spotting mostly because he's trying to Play a junkie he lost a lot spotting. of weight, too, between movies. Yeah, and so I guess we can talk a little bit about Danny Boyle in general, because... Um, general Danny Boyle. He's a, he's a huge filmmaker now. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's yeah. now, like, a dominating, like, mm-hmm. establishment mainstream voice in cinema. Yeah, yeah he's an Oscar winner for Best Picture for um, Slumdog Millionaire and also Best Director. Um, he's directed two uh, performances that were nominated for Best Actor, 127 Hours, James Franco, and mm. Michael Fassbender and Steve Jobs. Yeah, and I've seen nearly all of his movies, except for Millions, and liked most of them. Uh, we'll get into one of them 
the one that came directly after Train Spotting that is not so good, but I think we'll save that for the end. Okay. But other than that, um, yeah, most of these movies are at least good to great, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I love him. I'll see everything he ever does. I'm pretty much in that category. Even when I don't love the actual movie that he's made, I like they're always not just competently, but always very interestingly and uniquely uh, directed. Um, he's he's always great, like editing wise, cinematography. It's always very interesting, and he's always been really great at picking actors who fit the roles of the stories he's telling. Yeah, and it's interesting. He did his first three movies with Ewan McGregor and. They were also written by John Hodge and then, you know, moved on to uh, The Beach and 28 Days Later. And now we'll be returning to Ewan McGregor and John Hodge for T2 train spotting. Guys, I can't. I literally cried when I watched the trailer. <laughs> I have not watched it I, I literally cried. I can't tell you how excited I am. And the trailer looks amazing. Like, I almost don't want to watch the movie so that I always will have the possibility of it living up to <laughs> train spotting because uh, I don't want to be I'm I don't want to deliberately lower my expectations yeah I don't um, I don't want it to be bad the it trailer looks bad. real good the movie is based on um the sequel book to train spotting which was called porno um but also by Irvin Walsh so and it uh is about adult filmmaking so that should be interesting it's not another like heroin movie I think the characters have moved on and to cocaine and <laughs> I, I do know that they did, it, it strays from the book, the, the movie. Yeah, I saw that too. I think that they wanted to, because the characters would be older now um, than they were in the book. I think the book's supposed to be only 10 years mm-hmm. later, but all, obviously the actors are 20 years older than they were. So, And they've all aged amazingly. <laughs> that trailer is like, wow, these handsome, like 40-something-year-old men. Ewan McGregor has not really aged, and... He has not aged at all. I was thinking about him and just the fact that, like, he is maybe the rare kind of actor who would play the same roles now that he did Mm -hmm. back then. Like, he's been in huge movies because he was in the Star Wars uh, prequel movies. Moulin Rouge. Yeah. He's a huge star and yet never someone that you think of as a Tom Cruise type. Like, he'll be in those movies occasionally, but mostly he's still in the same kind of movies and playing the same kind of roles. But for me, it doesn't feel stale when he's doing it either. And there was another thing I was thinking about is like how fully he changes his appearance and like his body and all of that to do those roles and it never feels gimmicky. Like he's a really tremendous actor and is both very famous but also kind of under the radar in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's not really in scandals. He's just, he picks interesting parts. Right, he just picks really interesting parts. He's just a handsome, you know, likable actor. I think one of the things that's interesting about Train Spotting is that he plays such a flawed, unlikable person, and yet you still really like him. Like, he's charming, and he really makes you like Renton, even if when Renton is doing terrible things, like stealing his friend's sex tape <laughs> or doing drugs. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's launch into the movie itself. Um, spoiler alert, I love this movie. I still love it. <laughs> Um, wait wait you like this what (laughs) i think it holds up tremendously um granted i have not been away from it for very long but it i recently went to scotland and i watched the movie again it had been a few years i watched it again before my trip and after and then when i got back and rewatched train spotting i actually recognized 
the beginning uh, chase. It was filmed on Princess Street in Edinburgh, and I just squealed with delight that I had like context. Wait, for so the- you watched it before and after the trip, but not during, and you didn't like force people in Scotland <laughs> to watch you watching it? She hijacked the plane and projected it over the Freaking look at me! I'm looking at you here! It's fucking you! I, I tried to find like a list of like train spotting landmarks, but most of it was filmed in Glasgow and I was only there a night. But um, but I actually I don't this is me just fangirling out. Can you tell how much I love this movie? <laughs> uh, yes, we yeah. can tell. Um, but I, I don't know. What did you guys think? So when was the last time you saw it? And um, what did you think this time? I had only seen it once. I had only seen it oh. probably. Yeah, my freshman year wow. in college when Becky clockwork oranged me and <laughs> forced me to watch it. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very dynamic. It, it gets your attention right away, that, that opening. I mm-hmm. think there's been a lot of filmmakers who have emulated that style since then. It doesn't feel as distinct as it maybe once did, but I think you can still sense that this is one of the original kinds of the, this kind of kinetic movie where it's just, you know, constant motion with the camera and there's just all this energy and you you do kind of feel a high coming into this movie um, yeah, I because feel like it's so energetic. The match cuts are so good and the music and there are parts of the movie that make you really feel like it shares the experience of being high in a way. What, like whether that's, um, you know, when he's overdosing and he falls into the floor or, you know, when he's going through withdrawal. Oh, like when Spud is on speed during his interview and the, the way the camera moves, it makes you feel like you're on speed. You keep going back and forth. And I just thought it was it's really creative ways to make you get inside the characters uh, heads at that time. Was Run Lola Run after this? Yeah, that was yeah. 99. That's yeah, very similar. I feel, like, right. I feel like Run Lola Run really drew a lot of influence from this. Um and I mean, obviously, Requiem for a Dream, mm-hmm. in some ways, I think ripped this off just kind of blatantly. Um, not that I don't love Darren Aronofsky, but he definitely drew a lot of inspiration from this. Mm-hmm. But obviously, I know y'all both have more to go into about your reactions to it, but I loved how kinetic it was. It really drew you into the experience of the story being told, but also into the experiences that the characters were going into. And I thought it did it so effectively. I even thought that like the, the dream sequence where he's digging for those uh, opiate suppositories mm-hmm. in the shit filled toilet was absolutely just like a stunningly beautiful sequence. Oh God. It was like yeah. he, he shits these things out because he's finally unconstipated after several days being sober and these suppositories that he's taken plop down. So he reaches through to try to get to them and in the worst toilet in Scotland, in the worst toilet on Earth and and dives down into an ocean, basically. Um, And he even like swims by a World War Two underwater mine um, and is diving basically for these pearls of these (laughs) suppositories. And it was such a wild and almost like Terry Gilliam esque Mm -hmm. kind of sequence for me that it was one of those things that just kind of immediately drew me into liking this world and liking these people even as you say kind of as despicable as they can be yeah i remember when i was watching that uh toilet scene for the first time and 
it was just so surreal and weird. And I think at that point in my life, I hadn't... Hadn't ever dived into a toilet? Well, I've never been around a lot of surreal entertainment like that. And just mm-hmm. the fact that that happened, I just remember being like, well, this is going to be an interesting movie. Like, this yeah. is this is something <laughs> special. Um, by the way, tr- uh, trivia is that, uh, that all of that was chocolate, not real poop. So it smelled actually really nice in there. <laughs> Wow. One of my notes for this movie was lots of feces. Lots <laughs> it's of a feces. very fecal feature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could I could honestly live without that other shit scene. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. that might have been from the book as well or something. But um, Speaking of moral fiber, <laughs> can we address that there's a scene where there is an explosion of shit onto, like... Four different people. <laughs> yeah. And I've I've tried shit explosions and I've never been able to get more than one or two people at once. <laughs> I think the moral of that scene is when somebody tells you, I'll wash your sheets, don't worry about it. You listen to them. <laughs> yeah. So the scene to just set it up for those who haven't seen the movie in a while or haven't seen it at all is the character of Spud uh, wakes up after passing out. Um, his girlfriend unsuccessfully tries to have sex with him the night before, and he wakes up the next day and has literally shit the bed. Um, (laughs) I guess we're supposed to say because he's been doing drugs. I mean, is that... I honestly am not sure. Like, he was just so drunk. I know that's something that does happen to certain drug users. Oh, you know what? Was he also trying to get off drugs? Because if the constipation isn't there anymore... Maybe so. Yes, I think that's what it was. Okay. Um, And then also, it's when you you get hooked on opiates, it constipates you. Um, But when they start to leave your system, you get unplugged like literally yikes okay yeah yeah. so for some reason he drags the sheets into the kitchen where the family's eating breakfast and there's a tug of war with the girl's mom and spud is not to be considered a rational reasonable (laughs) human being and feces go flying onto everyone it's pretty gross and then yes there's a sequence in which renton has to dig through the toilet to find the suppositories there's also a reference uh tommy the character of Tommy dies from cat feces, oh, you're right, you're right. which give him a um, a stroke, right? The, no, or, the toxoplasmosis. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, which is a real thing, but that's yeah. that isn't what causes death in real. Well, life. he had AIDS, right? And then it was complications from yeah. that. So feces everywhere. <laughs> that's my review. <laughs> so one of the things that I did notice this time around that I hadn't noticed before, um, one of the questions that I had that I realized the, the movie doesn't really answer is why are they doing heroin? You don't really get a, a look into why they are choosing to run away from their problems. Like what are those problems they're running away from? Besides Tommy, we get to see why he turns to heroin um, because um, because of uh, – his girlfriend leaving him after uh, the tape of their sex tape goes missing because Renton stole it. Um, he decides what whatever his life is horrible anyway. Might as well get a pick me up from heroin. But none of the other characters have that, which I thought was really interesting actually. And I kind of would have liked if there was just a little bit of something, like even if it was subtext. And maybe you saw parts of Mark's home life because what you do see is that his parents are loving. So I wonder if that was deliberate to not give them reasons why they're on heroin. It's just a given that they're on heroin and this is what life is like as a junkie. Yeah, I think it's interesting that this movie has the opposite trajectory that you typically see in a lot of drug movies is that a lot of them start with a character who is, you know, fairly innocent or not doing drugs and then 
you know, you see them seduced by heroin or whatever it is, and then they... You see tragedy heaped upon them. Yeah. And in this movie, you start with him addicted to heroin, and he's getting off of it, and even though there are some um, back and forth with that, the journey of the movie is really more about getting off of heroin than it is getting on, and it's it's not... I, don't, I wouldn't ultimately say that this is even a drug movie per se. There's a lot of other stuff going on in the plot. Like, the plot doesn't just hinge on the drugs and not the drugs. Like, he's pretty much off drugs for the whole third act of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's more about... So, I guess, to answer your question is... The, the movie, I think, is really about peer pressure and the... Um, I mean, that makes it sound almost like something you would hear in your D.A.R.E. class in mm-hmm. elementary school. So um, that term is a little loaded. But just the fact that these guys, I think they do it because their friends do it. And, you know, you you have the moment where he or where a sick boy gets off heroin just because Renton is doing it. And you see that. And then I guess Spud is also getting off of it. So it's. Their behavior is all affecting each other, you know? It's mm-hmm. it's that I don't think that they see a lot of alternatives for themselves, and so they turn to it, I think, out of boredom, and I think there's probably some economic and political stuff that you could read into, especially if you knew more about the UK. I think this is supposed to take place in the late 80s, mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily have that context, like, specifically. But it's really not specific to the UK. It's it's kind of global. You know, um, by the late 80s, the UK had been under, you know, about a decade of Thatcherism, mm-hmm. um, which was their equivalent of Reaganomics. And really what that was all about was privatizing public services, so cutting assistance to the poor, forcing people off of social services, uh, making the National Health Service stingier, um, so people had a harder time getting treatment, um, making the job market tighter and making sure that wages never went up so people either couldn't find work or couldn't find work that would pay them enough to live on. Um, so I, I think it's hugely political in a way that I didn't notice until watching it this time around. I, and, and it also, watching it this time around, really made me key into how Chris, how you were seeing it in the sense that the quest for sobriety in this movie is as much and as painful and as difficult a trip as the quest to get Mm -hmm. like one more hit. Um, Like I think this movie really is pretty unique in that it captures both the thrill of drugs um, of all kinds and the pain that that thrill brings when there's no other thrill in life that you can find that's anything like it. It also captures, for me, how being straight in the sense of getting clean doesn't make the world make any more sense. It doesn't make horrific things any less horrific. And it doesn't make you any better as a person. I want to touch on that for a second because I noticed something this time. Yeah. So... Um, I try to step back from it because I have so much nostalgia for this movie. I try to look at it with fresh eyes. And so basically, Renton decides to give up heroin. His constipation goes away and he gets diarrhea. So already something bad has happened because he's decided to give up drugs. He goes off it again. (laughs) He goes off it again. He gets his libido back. Good thing. He hooks up with a girl. Good thing. Turns out the girl's 14 years old. (laughs) Another bad thing happens because he decided to get sober. He needs something else to get his kicks when he's not on heroin. So he steals his friend's sex tape, which leads to his friend's girlfriend breaking up with him, which leads to Tommy wanting to try heroin and eventually dies from it. 
So real life isn't doing Renton any favors. It's no wonder he turns to heroin to make real life go away. It just made it really interesting for me. It's like every time he tries to be a good person and go sober, something bad happens. So so it's no wonder he wants to just, he's like, I might as well go back on heroin. Well, and the the kind of um, essay or spoken word Mm -hmm. piece that sets the movie off that really I think has kind of become its own Mm -hmm. like classic bit of text is just kind of encapsulating what we're both talking about, which is like the falseness and the plastic nature of the aspirations of a quote unquote normal life that folks like Renton were encountering. That was no more real. That was no more accessible to them. And in the face of that, it makes perfect sense that they would find the thing that actually was an escape hatch and that they would be doing it with their best friends in life. Yeah, that opening monologue, I just, it occurred to me that Fight Club kind of rips off this movie too with um, the Edward Norton characters talk about all the um, furniture that he has Mm -hmm. and everything. It really sounds a lot like the opening in this movie. And that, those are very similar stories of a, of a, kind of an everyman guy who turns to something crazy because he can't stand the mundanity of ordinary life. And I think that's kind of what this movie is doing in a way that's a little bit less overt. I also really enjoyed, um, I think about midway through, there's another monologue where he's talking about how if you're doing heroin, that becomes your only problem. Your only problem is where you're going to get your Mm -hmm. next fix. And so all of your rent, health, girlfriend, any other problem that you might have becomes not a problem anymore because your only problem is that. And I It relieves you of complexity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so I think that's kind of the motivation here. And and even though I'm not someone who is likely to turn to heroin anytime soon, I mean I could kind of identify with that as an older person now, the the desire to just like make all those problems go away and just simplify it and be like, all right, I'm just gonna choose this one thing. And instead of having to worry, because in our modern lives, I mean, we have hundreds of things to worry about, and it's often very hard to balance it. And if you could just simplify that by wanting only one thing that took priority over everything, like, that did make me identify with this character and be like, oh, okay, I kind of understand now why these characters are turning to that, even though that's not a choice I would make. And in the political sense, kind of springboarding off of that, I think it's also drawing a metaphorical relationship between drug addiction and the kind of addiction to consumption, the addiction to getting more stuff, the addiction to furnishing your household or whatever with meaningless shit that doesn't actually make your life any better. And the way that it's both a choice that you're making each time you do it, but that then becomes this addiction that reaches the point where it's unconscious. I think a parallel that it sets up is like the way that Renton's character each time is like, well, here's how I'm getting clean, like making a list, bullet points of all the stuff I need to do. Oh yeah, and just one more hit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's every always time, an excuse. Every time there's always yeah. one more hit. He needs one and more the hit. the reason why he needs to do it. Yeah, and then later he's like, well, no one else was going to do it, so I had to try the heroin. Like there's always... a a reason whether it's a real reason, you know, quote unquote, or like the most ludicrous reason there is, like there's always a reason to go back on drugs. Yeah. Yeah. um, And I think it's also kind of personified in the movie where they go into, like they go on a hike in nature Mm -hmm. and they're just so bored that it's just like, (laughs) I think that's kind of the capsule of the movie is just what else are they going to do? You know, like everything else is so boring to them that like the natural world just doesn't have anything to offer them. They get there and they're like, 
you know, they, they may hope that they'll be interested in this. And once they get there, they're like, ah, nope, let's go do some heroin. Mm-hmm. And I also want to draw a line following from both of y'all, um, from these characters to Robert Carlyle's character of Begbie, mm-hmm. because as different as he is on the surface level in the sense that he's not a heroin junkie, uh, in the sense that in certain ways he's pretty judgmental of his friend's lifestyle, mm-hmm. um, he is addicted as well. He's addicted to mayhem and senseless violence. And the way y- y- you can tell, it doesn't go too much into his backstory or really kind of into what he's into in the context of the film either, but you definitely feel the sense from him that violence and being the live wire is a thing that he's consciously choosing each time, but he's at that point in his life where he's done it for so long that it's completely unconscious to him as well. And it's an, like it's it's really li- living up to what I'm saying about like how even being quote unquote straight in, in the in the world of this movie doesn't make you any better of a person than anyone else. No. And a little trivia about Begbie's character, Robert Carlyle played him as though he was a gay man uh, overcompensating for being gay. And he had talked about that with Irvine Welsh, who wrote the book. And Irvine Welsh said that was some of the subtext in the in the book as well, that That's he, was, he, ri- he wrote Begbie with that in mind. So it's kind of interesting watching there's, the movie. There's kind of that. a brief moment in the movie that's some somewhat like that. Yeah, he hooks up with a um, transsexual. Transsexual, um, yeah. Uh, and it, it does he not He it's a woman, and <laughs> yeah. it, but they still have a penis. And uh, actually freaks out. I was a little worried that he was going to do something a little worse. I was than very just worried. Run out of there, and then... Um, and then he has a confrontation scene with... Renton. With Renton, yeah. where they discuss it. And Renton takes the very sensible position of, you know, like, why didn't you... Could have been great. Yeah, <laughs> it would have been fun. You would have had a great time. Um, and that really freaks Begbie out. Um, and it was really it was really interesting because I did get that subtext, but it was also, again, just a thing that without a ton of exposition about this character's backstory and why they are the way they are, it was just a sense of choices by the characters that just revealed who they are. And I thought I thought that was part of how the writing really really worked for me. Absolutely. I, I was reading, I think it's something in the sequel book maybe so maybe this will be in the movie but um don't you spoil anything begbie's in prison uh one of the characters is sending him gay porn anonymously in prison so that thread line will continue in the story i think all right one of the things that i noticed this time around that i hadn't noticed in the million other times i've watched this movie um right before we recorded this podcast we just put the opening scene on and there's uh begbie and tommy are the two characters that don't do drugs in the beginning of the movie and they say, like, pardon my Scottish accent. Uh, no way would I poison my body of that shite. That shite being that, Lucky Charms. That shite being heroin. Um, and Tommy <laughs> says that line, and he is smoking literally during that line, which it's I thought was the whole movie. which is is really yeah. interesting because it's the movie is just filled with hypocrites. Yes. Oh, absolutely filled with hypocrites. Like he even Renton says that his mom is a uh, drug addict in her own uh, conventional accepted way because she takes Valium or something prescribed. Yeah, and there's the scene where his family's all excited that he's getting off heroin and they take him out for drinks, you know? And yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah, so it's like there's, for these people, the heroin addiction is unacceptable, but 
other addictions are fine. Yeah, exactly. And it's and it's interesting to me because it's both true that everyone in the movie is a hypocrite, but it's also true that the movie doesn't need to nail them for it because they nail themselves for it at literally every turn. You mean the characters? Yes. Do? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, like Begbie, you can tell he's a miserable person. He's very right. unhappy with himself. Right. He's, he's not a person. Nobody benefits from their hypocrisy. Like a lot of people, I think he acts out in violence because he's so miserable with himself and because he has this insecurity. Maybe, yeah, because he's, you know, secretly gay and can't deal with that. But just, I mean, he causes a horrible act of violence on someone in the end of the movie and that kind of, you know, makes Renton realize that he can't continue on these guys, I think, is that he needs to get out of these relationships. And it stems from him being so deeply unhappy. And I think all of these characters are unhappy. That's why they've, you know, turned to drugs in a way. They're unhappy with something. And it comes out in different ways. And it's not that using heroin or using drugs is, you know, the only way that's depicted in this Mm -hmm. movie. is like everyone has something. Yeah. So one of the criticisms that the movie had at the time was that, you know, people thought that it glamorized drug use. I never agreed with that, but I do have to say I understand where the criticism comes from because the movie does have a hip soundtrack. There was hip marketing. I had two train spotting posters up in my 13-year-old bedroom, uh, one with Sick Boy, like, you know, being all cute and, like, pointing out at uh, me. so cute. Can and, we just uh, point out Johnny Lee Miller <laughs> is so fucking cute. I'm more of you, you and McGregor, but they didn't have you McGregor at my local shop of movie posters, so I so I chose some sick boy. They probably sold out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I I do understand that like it the movie is about heroin addicts and it does use a really hip soundtrack. It's it's a hip movie. It's a cool movie. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on that as well. Well, so I obviously I. As I explained, I didn't really have any kind of context for actual drug use. Um, I didn't have any understanding of how drugs worked biologically or just kind of experientially in the way that people that they made people feel. Um, since watching the movie for the first one or two times that I saw it before this, um, I read a book by William S. Burroughs called Junkie. Um, and it's just exponentially more miserable than this, but, um, it describes exactly the same set of feelings about how heroin makes you feel, um, that it really is that tremendous, um, that it, I mean, cause the way they describe it in the movie, there's like, you know, like a thousand orgasms all at once. That and- beats any meat, what is it? Meat injection. That beats any <laughs> fucking cock in the world. Beats any fucking cock in the world. Um, and both from my experience reading like the William S. Burroughs book, because he was a notorious heroin junkie for a long time um, and got completely clean for most of the rest of his life. Um, and just other also even knowing people who had done heroin, not become addicted, but had experimented with it. Um, it actually is a lot more realistic than I gave it credit for the first few times I'd seen the movie. Um I think that I agree with you that it obviously it does set up a very kinetic, cool soundtrack. Um, but I don't think that that inherently means it's glamorizing it because again, I, I think it, I think it accurately captures the thrill of how drugs make human beings feel. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and the pain that 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 thrill and the pain that seeking that thrill inflicts on the people who habitually and addictively seek it. Um, and and I think what people are outraged about when people attack movies like this that feature people doing drugs where the characters aren't immediately killed. Um, what they're really outraged about is that people have a good time and aren't punished for it. Mm. Um, I really do think there is a deeply puritanical reactionary impulse to any kind of movie character who makes the wrong kind of social choices, the wrong kinds of behavioral choices, unless it's alcohol or unless it's, you know, some other, a narrow range of things. There are a narrow range of substances that we don't guilt and shame people for using. Coffee. Coffee, cigarettes, even to a large extent, even though that's obviously been really diminished in mainstream cinema. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think... I don't think it's glamorizing drugs or drug use or drug abuse. I think it's uh, surrealistically but accurately depicting what that's like. Yeah, I actually really appreciate this movie's view of drugs because there are a lot of drug movies out there. I'm trying to think of other ones about heroin. There's Basketball Diaries Mm. and then Requiem for a Dream came a bit later. But in a lot of those movies, you watch them and you don't understand why anyone would do these drugs in the first place. Um, Yeah, like why why they ever would have done that. Yeah, and I think Requiem for a Dream is a tremendous movie, but is maybe made better by also seeing something like Trainspotting and understanding the thrill that these people are feeling in addition to like the overwhelming misery that kind of takes you through that movie. And yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, that I just didn't have any understanding of what drugs did when I was younger and still am, you know, fairly naive about heroin because I don't know really anyone close to me who has had an addiction to heroin. You know, I I've, most of what I know about heroin is still from movies and from other pop culture. So I actually appreciate this movie because people wouldn't do it if it didn't give you this immense elation, the thousand orgasms, like and I think this movie really makes it seem like it's really that overwhelming and that fun and that pleasurable. And if that's all the movie depicted, yeah, that might be kind of glamorizing it. But there, there comes a cost of that fun and a that high cost. Every time. And yeah. I think even if, I mean, we were joking about how much feces there were in this movie, and I don't know if that's just Danny Boyle's thing because Slumdog Millionaire had <laughs> a lot of feces as well. <laughs> But um, that griminess is always there, too. Like, the production design, even though some shots are quite beautiful and it's all very energetic, there's a lot of griminess to it that I think makes it a lot less glamorous than it might be anyways. Yeah, you know what? I almost, like, I kind of went to Scotland because of this movie and how much I love it and also whiskey. But um, I was almost kind of not looking... Don't you mean scotch? Scotch. Uh, (laughs) No, it's called whiskey there. Um, Because it's already Scotland. Anyway. uh, I... Fucking oi! I I honestly was kind of expecting Scotland to look like this movie and it wasn't it was gorgeous. <laughs> Obviously there are parts oh, yeah. of you know Glasgow or whatever that are grimier, but I but I didn't actually realize in 1996 watching this movie that it's supposed to take place in the late 80s. I just thought that's what Scotland looked like then. <laughs> uh and grimy, um but that's all production design. I mean it's there for a reason. They made it look old and faded and gross. Well, and and I mean like what Chris you're describing is texture. It's a very textured movie. It's a very um, layered movie as kind of 
deceptively kinetic as it is and as much as everything keeps moving like i rewatched some scenes today and even while rewatching it even while rewatching the movie for this episode of the podcast i had to rewind some of the scenes and just kind of rewatch what was going on in this corner over there and what was going on and, and like how dirty that part of the room was it was so interestingly textured and i think the they handle the characters the exact same way yeah, and not to keep going back to feces, but, <laughs> I, but I, I do feel like that's kind of a metaphor for these characters in that, like... You're in the shit now, boy. They're the, shite. They're the shit in the this sh- otherwise... You're in the shite now, boy. In a pink bed, they're the uh-huh. shit, you know? Like, yeah. that they're soiling their lives. Doing these drugs is always going to literally, like, rain shit down on you. In terms of consequences, I mean, we haven't talked yet about the baby scene, which I think that's the thing that I had taken with the, me more than anything the baby, from this movie. The baby finding out she had died or the withdrawal scene? Oh, well, both. Well, I we mean, didn't talk about the baby at all. Yeah. So, let's just, no. so, I mean, so the, the there's a baby amongst... Um, <laughs> One thing we haven't mentioned. Yeah, there's a baby amongst all of this, you know, heroin uh, shooting up and then... Halfway through the movie, the characters realize along with the audience that this baby has died. Like, lo- who knows how long ago. Yeah, while everyone is you know, passed out and doing their, their fix, Big binge. they've just left the baby unattended in the crib. And it looks like it's been there for a, a couple of days or something. Cause it's, it is not a fresh baby. And then later, uh, Renton, when he's in withdrawal, he hallucinates the baby crawling on the ceiling. And he hallucinates a lot a of the exorcist things. twist. Yeah, he hallucinates a lot about what he feels guilty about. Yeah. So he he pictures his friend Spud, who's now in jail. Um, he pick, he sees his friend Tommy, who now has AIDS from sharing needles, it got into heroin because of him. Like that whole scene is, look at all the shit that I've done because I've been selfish and I've only wanted heroin. And now I'm sober or trying to be and th- now real life is coming back to me and it's not pretty. Yeah, and that's another reason why these characters keep turning back to it is because these memories are there and these things can only be taken. I mean, immediately after finding the body of the baby in the crib, the mother says, I want to do some heroin because she can't deal with what she's done. Yeah. Well, no, Renton says it first. Yeah, they all do. Because they all turn to Renton and say, you have to say something because they see him... Even though he's not much of a leader, they see him as the the spokesman uh, yeah. of the group, um, and they say, "Well, y- you got to say something to her." And he's like, uh, "No, fuck it, I'm gonna." Yeah. He I'm says, gonna "I'm cooking up, up. cooking up, yeah, yeah, I'm cooking up." And um, and then and the mother does too, and it's it's the only way that they can forget about what they've done, and it, it's this constant escape for these characters. But it's um, yeah, that baby scene is very um, memorable. Yeah, it's completely hair. I mean, just the image of that it's poor harrowing. baby. It's very harrowing. Harrowing about heroin. Um, and I think that something like that in this movie is what you can definitely turn to and say that it's not just glamorizing drug use. I mean, it's right. a pretty accurate depiction, I think, that, yeah, there are these pleasures that you'll get from it. But to come away from this movie thinking that looks like a lot of fun and only like a lot of fun, it's hard to imagine anyone. I mean, this movie did not make me want to do heroin whatsoever. No, nobody loves this movie more than me, and I've never tried heroin, so I think you're safe, kids. (laughs) Job well done, Danny Boyle. (laughs) Yeah, and this movie also, um, I mean, it goes into a lot of of, um, things that are very, I think, specific to the 90s, like AIDS. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess it takes place in the late 80s. Um, But does so in a pretty interesting way for a movie of this time. Like, we've seen 
AIDS handled, I think, in very cliche ways a lot of times. But in this movie... And nearly always revolving around being gay that's rather true, than yeah. intravenous drug use. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I wanted to just talk about poor Tommy for a moment. Poor Tommy. Also poor Tommy that he's not in the marketing for this movie. And the reason yeah. the reason is because he was on vacation. So he wasn't there for the photo what? shoot. Oh. Isn't that, that isn't that insane? Don't you think they could have taken a picture of him at any other time so we could have had any like poster? Because the Let's poster Photoshop him into the poster. The, the marketing for this movie was that Fuck each character out. got like their own poster yeah. and then or they're together in a line. Like yeah. poor Tommy. <laughs> it's just not in any of it. Sorry, Kevin McKidd. Um, but but in the movie, yes, poor Tommy. Yeah, I mean it's what we were saying about Renton that he's not necessarily a likable guy is I mean it's I wouldn't say it's directly his fault what happens to Tommy because Tommy's responsible for his own choices, mm-hmm. but he does take the tape that then causes the girlfriend to break up with Tommy, that then causes Tommy to want to do heroin but and he, then introduces Tommy to heroin. Right, he ta- he isn't going to do it, and then Tommy holds out money, and Renton's like, oh, okay. Yeah, and so, I mean, he's fairly directly responsible, but also indirectly responsible. Mm-hmm. and Enough to feel guilty about it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, and I again, it's it's that this drug is passed on through friends seeing other friends doing it and wanting. I think that part of this movie is wanting, like the story for Renton is not so much wanting to do heroin, but wanting to have a good time with his friends and to have these experiences with his friends because. Even once he gets off heroin, his friends come back to him and want to get him sucked up in something that's even more dangerous in a way mm-hmm. because it's yeah. a crime and and drug drug selling and um and the ultimate journey for Renton is learning how to say no not to drugs per se but to his friends like his friends are kind of the drug that mm. camaraderie that they feel and I think that's how these all these guys all get started on it too is because they're they're friends with each other and they want to join in and have a good time with each other it's not necessarily about the heroin itself it, it could be kind of anything that they were doing and it just happens to be the heroin um i also found it interesting that it seems like every era has its own drug that at least we associate with it even though people are, were obviously doing many drugs in many different eras but the 90s is kind of like the heroin mm-hmm, era the heroin chic look was yeah, in the exactly. 80s were cocaine the 70s 2000... were kind of marijuana i feel like 2000s were like ecstasy 60s and were DMA lsd and... yeah exactly i don't necessarily know that these drugs are that much more prevalent in these eras but this definitely is like the 90s heroin movie and, and it's very associated with that for me in, in my memory okay so i think that we can all agree that train spotting uh holds up great movie yeah, I think it's um, fantastic. Yeah. Um, Definitely. Yeah. I, I thank you, Danny Boyle, for making it and introducing me to independent cinema in general. Way to go, Danny. <laughs> Way to go. Oh, God, it's terrible. <laughs> um, so I've got, I've got some playtime here. So uh, who in the main cast is not Scottish? Do you know? Can you guess? The baby. Uh, um, it's a Welsh baby. Johnny Welsh Lee Miller? Baby. Johnny Lee Miller. He is. Okay. Do you know what he is? Welsh? No, he is British. He was born and raised in okay. London. Uh, he does a pretty good Scottish accent. He got the part by doing a, an impression of Sean Connery, <laughs> which he does in the movie. Okay. Yeah, um, he does. There's an obsession with Bond in the movie. I love it. How many times is the word cunt used in the movie? 62. 16. 18 times. Hmm. 
Chris was closer. Chris was closer. A bit closer. Which actor in the movie previously played Renton in the stage adaptation of the novel? Oh, I know this one. I saw this one. You know this one? Seth? Mm. Can you guess? Mm. Ewan McGregor, Ewan Bremner, Robert Carlyle, Johnny, Milla, ja- bleh, Johnny Lee Miller, or Kevin McKidd? Kevin McKidd? Ewan Bremner. Ewan Bremner, oh. Ewan Bremner has been in a, in a couple of things also. He was in Snowpiercer. He was in Snatch, I think. He was in one of the Pirates movies. He's he's and he's in the upcoming train. He's been all over. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely a familiar face. Got, yeah. yeah, he's got a very interesting face. Um, Kelly McDonald also like. Oh yeah. We, should, we didn't talk about her too much, but she was um, cast. Basically, she was just a waitress when she got this part mm-hmm. and just saw a flyer and didn't really know what she was doing. And I was reading that she got drunk the first day that she was. <laughs> oh filming, yeah, yeah. And like was hungover by the time she did that big scene outside of the nightclub, but. Still worked out pretty well, and she's one of the more famous people from this movie, I would say now. Yeah, she was the voice of Merida, Merida uh, from Brave. Mm. She was in Finding Neverland. Um, she was on Boardwalk Empire. She's, she's in Harry in, Potter. Oh, she's no Country Harry for Potter. Old Men. No right? Country for Old Men. No she's been in a lot of things. Men, Black Mirror. Um, so after um, after Train Spotting, uh, you McGregor teams up with Danny Boyle again for a life less ordinary. They actually had a falling out for decades, and oh, that really? was because. Um, from what I can remember, he was supposed to be in the beach and then Leo DiCaprio became this huge thing, Titanic, and he cast, uh, Leo DiCaprio on the beach and Ewan McGregor was not happy and they did not talk for decades. So just the fact that they are making the train spotting sequel of the original cast and they've all made up, it just makes me very happy. (laughs) But I just think of all the movies that they would have done together time. And also the beach wasn't that good. So it's like, can't believe your friendship working relationship was yeah. kind of destroyed yeah. for a while because of this movie that wasn't like that worth it. Yeah, I mean, I think the beach though is too similar to these other movies that where like to cast you and McGregor in it again would have just it would have felt really repetitive. Um it's because it's, it's it's kind of a drug movie as well and it it has that same kind of style as train spotting. So I don't know. I kind of appreciated at the time that it was Leonardo DiCaprio doing something that was kind of crazy and adult, even though I don't think the movie works completely. Like, I would rather see Leonardo DiCaprio in it than Ewan McGregor, just because I felt like he'd, he'd done this before and would do similar things again. So. so I haven't seen A Life Less Ordinary, but Chris has. Yes, I have. I have. <laughs> I watched was it, was it ordinary? It was not ordinary, no. I would like to just take a moment to tell you about the plot of this movie. Because, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so it stars Ewan McGregor and Cameron Diaz, as well as Holly Hunter and Delroy Lindo. Okay. So the movie begins in heaven. <laughs> Just stop there. <laughs> Honestly, no. wait, like, like a, like a cloudy, cloudy kind of heaven. Everything, like, it's kind of cool production design because everything is just—it's a white office, but like, literally everything is white. Like, every prop is white. All the clothes are white. Okay. Every all the wall, are white. ceiling, floor, all white. So it's heaven. And Dan Hedaya is <laughs> like Hedaya. a, like the police chief in heaven or something like that. <laughs> He's the sheriff of heaven. <laughs> And he tells Holly Hunter and Delroy Lindo, who are angels, that um, God is mad that they're, the couples that they're having fall in love keep getting divorced. There's too many divorces on Earth now. Oh, my God. And, and other, like, people not staying together in love. So 
he tells them that they have one last chance to get a couple together, and if they don't, they're expelled from heaven forever. Oh. So is this then, what that Bruno Mars song is about too? <laughs> Please tell me this is like a heroin dream <laughs> that the people in train spotting are having. <laughs> I chose to do heroin yesterday and this is the movie that I dreamed up. No. So then you cut to Damn it. <laughs> um Ewan McGregor is a janitor who finds out that <laughs> his the hottest janitor. <laughs> Why isn't that movie called The Hottest Janitor? <laughs> who heaven. finds out that he's being replaced by a robot. It's a literal robot that goes around like sweeping the floors. This is not a real movie. And has lost his job. You are totally making this At up. At the same time, Cameron Diaz is the daughter of you'll later find out it's Ewan McGregor's boss, but so she's super rich. You see her first like swimming in this pool. She gets out of the pool. And there's like a silver tray and on it is a gun. And she takes the gun and shoots an apple off of her butler's head. And then later, Stanley Tucci (laughs) shows up and he wants to marry Cameron Diaz. So she says, okay, well, if you pose with the apple on your head, I guess I'll marry you or something. So she aims the gun at him and then he's like, wait, but she shoots it. And you don't see what happens, but it's implied that she shot. Well, I mean, Uh you know that she shot him and... They're like, oh, well, I guess he's a dentist. They're like, he'll never be a dentist again. <laughs> and it's just, it's treated like funny, even though she just shot what? this guy, I guess in the head. Like, <laughs> And so anyway, so she's visiting her dad in the office and then Ewan McGregor comes in, grabs one of the security guard's guns and then like, he drops the gun at one point and she kicks it back over to him because she's a troublemaker. And then they go... And start, um, and and they go on the run, basically. And so she wants to be kidnapped, basically, and is helping him get the money from her dad. Oh, and, my God. But wait, 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 wait. Oh. Meanwhile, Holly Hunter and Delroy Lindo, the angels, go to the father and say, we are kidnap rescue experts or whatever, what? and we'll get her back for you. And so then they go after Ewan McGregor and Cameron Diaz with guns, and there's all this, like, shooting. They're angels with guns. Yeah, so there's a lot of shootouts, and, like, Holly Hunter will be shot in the head and stuff, and then, like, come back later alive, because I guess she's an angel. But it's, like, it's very weirdly, like, violent, and Holly Hunter gives the weirdest performance in this movie. She's doing some kind of crazy accent. It's a really bad, awkward performance. Like, I'm just like, what are you doing in this movie? Oh, my God. Like, this movie is a mess, because it's supposed to be, like sweet that like these two like you're supposed to want these guys to get together Uh even though they're like blackmailing her dad and there's all this like gunplay and they're like supposedly killing people this is incredible it's in the sense that i literally don't believe that it's a movie (laughs) it's one of those like i can't believe i'm watching this movie movies and so it is not a good movie i um just like the script and, and it was written by the same guy who did train spotting and it has a lot of the weaknesses, I think, of the ripoffs of like Pulp Fiction and Train Spotting that came after those mm-hmm. movies, where it's a lot of crime and it, they're trying to be like funny and sarcastic. And, like, yeah. And it's the just things that this... I hate about 90s independence. Exactly. Cinema. And it's just this mix that doesn't go down well. I, I don't feel like like gunplay and that kind of humor just really work that well. I mean, there I'm sure there are exceptions, but not not in this movie. Like right. a romantic comedy with lots of guns just doesn't doesn't so much work and the movie was a big flop it only made 4.7 million um so it wasn't the highest grossing movie in britain no it was not i think uh (laughs) his streak ended um and it was released in october 97 when i know what you did last summer was the top of the box office so 
that's a better movie in my opinion. Oh well, um, that's for another time. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> that's anyway, for another time where we disagree with you. Before I had watched that movie, I was thinking, oh, actually, like Danny Boyle has like. I don't think any of his movies are bad. And then I watch this one and I'm like, okay, there's one. Yeah. <laughs> but the rest of them are all at least okay yeah. to good, I would say. Well, that was train spotting. Next time we're sticking with the 90s and we've decided um, to uh, look, take a look back at Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. From heroin to Jagged Little Pill. <laughs> uh, basically, this is the same around the same time that. Uh, I was in love with train spotting. I was also in love with Jag Little Pill. And that's all the heroin we have time for today. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. And as we read earlier, if you would like to have your works featured on this show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. We prefer reviews of five stars or more and reviews of five sentences or more. You can subscribe to us on iTunes as well. You can tweet us at www.yshow. You can follow us on Facebook at www.yshow. You can contribute to our Patreon page and help us defray the cost of making the show and bringing it to you for free by by donating at patreon.com slash when we were young. And you can email the show at www.yshow at gmail.com. Or you can choose heroin. Choose you, life. Up to you. Be smart. Don't start. Choose when we were young. <laughs> choose Jif. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions?